0: The other investigator I met with for this program was Dr. Stephen Sherman, who began our conversation by providing a macro view of thyroid cancer. It's one of the few cancers that's actually increasing
1: in incidence over time. And just for kind of relative perspective, in 2000 it was the 10th most common cancer being diagnosed in women, this year it'll be the 6th. And so it's been rising up that ladder, you know, one notch every couple of years recent study suggested that a lot of that increase was really due to very small tumors that were being found, perhaps incidentally. Questions about whether increased use of imaging studies like ultrasounds of the neck for carotid Doppler studies might be identifying smaller tumors at an earlier stage. So that certainly is probably one big component, but it's actually a worldwide phenomenon. What about the death rate? The death rate has been stable, and people have pointed to that saying, aha, therefore the increased incidence isn't very relevant. Because the median survival is measured in decades for most patients with the disease, we wouldn't expect to see instantly a change in the mortality rates due to more aggressive disease. Nonetheless, two very important features. One is, in women, there is not the typical decline in mortality that's being seen with almost every other form of solid tumor. So although it's not going up, what is unusual is it's not going down. In men, actually statistically, the mortality has been increasing, and there's really only one other solid tumor that has a faster increase in age-adjusted mortality. So as I look at this The incidence is increasing partly due to small disease, perhaps partly due to background radiation levels, but the mortality is telling us that we haven't done anything new or anything better for patients with this disease in decades, and that's why we're not seeing any improvement.
0: What have we learned about the biology of this disease in recent years, and particularly some of the metabolic pathways that are characterizing this tumor?
1: Several key things, and I think the 50,000-foot view is that the same things that happen in other cancers go wrong in thyroid cancer. And, you know, our traditional endocrine view of looking at thyroid cancer as something special probably has hurt us more than helped us in approaching the disease. So what we've learned to a large degree is that thyroid cancer and its various histologies is a genetic disease due to mutations. The mutations can be inherited such as in familial medullary thyroid cancer or multiple endocrine neoplasia type 2. More commonly, these are somatic mutations. And in papillary cancer, the most common subtype, at least 95% of these cancers are due to a single activating mutation in one of three different genes. And these genes are all linked in a common signaling pathway, the MAP kinase signaling pathway. So the most common mutation is called BRAF, B-R-A-F, and this is actually the same mutation that is seen in melanomas. Patients whose tumors have a BRAF mutation tend to have a more aggressive disease and tend to lose differentiated function more rapidly than with others. So step one was, yes, it's a genetic disease. Step two is that there are important signaling pathways that stimulate growth that transmit signals from cell surface receptors, whether it's the EGF receptor or the MET receptor, several others, on the tumor cells themselves that stimulate growth and proliferation and invasive behavior. And then finally, it's a disease that is dependent upon the stroma. It's dependent upon the normal non-cancerous cells that are part of this tumor mass, including the vasculature. And this is a disease that's capable of hijacking the vasculature to permit invasion and metastasis. So each of these three fundamental properties of cancer that happen in colon and lung also happen in thyroid, and they represent potential means for treating the disease because we can try to target the gene or the abnormal protein that comes from the mutated gene. We can try to interrupt the signaling pathways Or, and or, we can
0: manipulate the normal tissues that support the biology of the tumor. It is true that no matter where you go in oncology, you hear these types of molecular machinations and oncologists trying to figure out, you know, what it means. And in thyroid cancer, we think back to, you know, the histologic subtypes that we're familiar with. How do you match the histology up with some of the new biology?
1: Well, the biggest distinction between the neuroendocrine-derived medullary thyroid cancer and all the others, that has held true. Clearly very distinct diseases, completely different mutation profile, different tissues of origin fundamentally. So that has not been obscured by the molecular biology. The difference between the papillary and follicular subtypes of differentiated thyroid cancer had actually become more obscured as the years went by as we realized that overall, stage for stage, the outcomes were similar. How physicians were treating the patients were pretty similar. We are now stepping back from that and realizing that there are molecular differences. There are mutations that lead to follicular carcinomas that may or may not be involved with papillary carcinomas. And then some of the unusual subtypes of the disease, say the Herthal cell thyroid cancer's which have historically been classified as follicular tumors, molecularly, they look more like papillary carcinomas than follicular. So it is helping us understand a bit more. Finally, there is the subgroup of patients whose tumors go on to de-differentiate and lead to anaplastic thyroid cancer. And there is an accumulated set of multiple genetic defects, probably, that end up with this highly aggressive, fulminantly growing tumor.
0: Can you talk about some of the common presentations of thyroid cancer that an oncologist, a medical oncologist in practice might see? We have the advantage of very
1: sensitive biochemical markers for each disease. For papillary and follicular, it's the protein thyroglobulin and a mini epidemic of patients who have elevated thyroglobulin levels and no demonstrable tumor. So... We know they have evidence of disease, but where it is is difficult to find. It may take years for it to crop up. That has been an even bigger problem in medullary thyroid cancer, where we have even more sensitive biochemical markers, calcitonin and CEA. So a metastatic workup might get triggered by an elevated or rising levels of these markers. Chest CT for the papillary and follicular carcinoma is usually the first step, And the most common place you'd see it are lung nodules that may not show up on chest X-ray. And in the liver, in the medullary carcinoma patients, and that can be tricky. These often are small tumors that look like hemangiomas. They're very highly vascularized. And it may take specialized protocols for liver imaging by CT or MRI for the radiologist to really identify these are tumors.
0: What's the usual approach to a patient who has marker-only disease? I think it
1: depends on who's taking care of the patient and their level of experience and perspective. In the endocrine community, we went through a phase where the patient with an elevated thyroglobulin almost always got treated repeatedly with radioactive iodine. And even though scans wouldn't demonstrate any uptake pathologically, the iodine wasn't accumulating anywhere. And without any radiographic evidence of disease, and probably most importantly, no symptoms of the disease, these patients were getting repeat treatments and seeing the marker go down. We've come to mostly realize that that's really fruitless and really no evidence that clinically the patients benefit. In fact, they're probably harmed by the accumulated toxicities of repeated radioactive iodine treatment. For the patient with an elevated calcitonin, That also has led to a need for perspective, but since there wasn't an empiric therapy, it was really a matter of repeat imaging and how often and how extensively you image trying to find the source of the elevated marker. To this day, I mean, the majority of patients who have low levels of elevation for these markers, we don't find demonstrable disease, and that's a good thing, and we've come to realize that they're best left alone.
0: Does that mean that they're destined not to recur? Clinically? No. I mean, is it thinking that unless they die of some intercurrent disease, I mean, that they actually do have a subclinical disease there? Correct. There are a few false positive issues
1: that arise with the types of assays that measure these markers. But in general, these are very highly specific for the tumors they come from. And so if you have a patient who has an elevated thyroglobulin level, it's important to see what's happening to it over time. For many of these patients, it's perfectly stable, and those patients are not likely to have a clinical recurrence. You may find over years that it starts to decline spontaneously without any further intervention. Potentially, those are patients who had cancers that were affected but not killed by radioactive iodine, but eventually unable to replicate the cells, and eventually those cells die off. With medullary carcinoma, that would be a much more unusual pattern, but the pace of change is important, and we've come to be able to look at the rate of doubling in calcitonin, and when we get to doubling that is occurring in a year or less, those are patients who tend to not only have demonstrable disease, but where you can see it progress, and actually a calcitonin doubling time of less than six months helps to define a group of patients at significant mortality risk.
0: It's interesting in a way what you're talking about sounds a little bit like prostate cancer with PSA. And there, there's been a lot of discussion of whether or not in that window is a time where you know, new agents should be looked at. Is that happening with thyroid? There's a lot of discussion about it. Now, a lot of
1: the agents that have been looked at are primarily anti-angiogenic And the problem there is that angiogenesis is a minor component of the biology of micronodular metastatic disease. You could make the argument that it could be prophylactic, that you could treat somebody with therapies to prevent clinical progression of disease. We'd probably need to be able to do a better job of figuring out who those patients are who will progress and therefore might need such benefit and continue to come up with agents that are better tolerated because we're talking about patients going on therapies for what could be years at a time. Side effects and costs accumulate.
0: What is your usual clinical trigger to treat a patient?
1: I look at a number of
0: things in terms of treating metastases. Mm-hmm. I look First of all, you wait for clinical presence or diagnosis of overt clinical metastases.
1: Yes, yes. In general, we don't treat patients who have biochemical evidence only. And that's now consistent
0: with international guidelines. So once the patient actually has evident clinical metastases, what goes into your decision about whether or not to treat and what to treat with? Well, the first thing is
1: for the patients with papillary or follicular, is there still radioactive iodine responsiveness? Is this a tumor that could be treated? Because that does remain a potential curative intervention. So one might image with radioactive iodine to see if there is enough uptake to justify therapy. The second is to optimize thyroid hormone suppression therapy, which is very important. And if we maintain TSH levels below normal, we can slow down the growth rate. Assume we get past that and the patient has disease that's not responding to those interventions. I look at the pace of change. patient who has tumor diameters that are increasing by 20-25% in six to 12 month period of time really begins to define a population of patients where the disease is escalating and they will get into trouble. So many patients, the tumors might change a millimeter a year and be completely asymptomatic. So we look at the pace of change, and we look to see whether the patient's actually symptomatic. It's remarkable how much tumor many of these patients can have in their
0: lungs and have absolutely no symptoms from it. What's the variation in terms of what's seen from the time of clinical diagnosis of metastatic disease to death? It can be years and decades. I have one patient
1: whose lung metastases were identified in the 1950s. She still has active thyroid cancer in her lungs. If you do a radioactive iodine scan, it's positive. But she's been clinically stable for decades, and frankly, anything we do to her would be worse than the disease itself. But in general, you're looking at about a five to 10 year time window.
0: Still longer than most cancers. And when you get to the point where you feel the patient does require some kind of systemic therapy, what are some of the options that you're thinking through? Both at our institution and now by
1: guidelines, our first question is, is this a patient who is appropriate for a clinical trial? And is there a clinical trial that's appropriate for the patient? A lot of points go into that decision. Some of them are based upon the patient's clinical well-being and performance status and how they're doing. Some of it may depend upon the biology of the tumor. We are now beginning to do genotyping of certain metastatic tumors to try to identify what types of therapies potentially would be more effective. There are practical limitations. You know, if the patient comes to me from the middle of Nebraska, and we're following them for their thyroid cancer, and there's no clinical trial that is realistically near them, that's a huge problem. Insurance logistics, so a lot of that goes into it. And then, of course, the patient's interest or desire to participate in an experiment. But we look at clinical trial options, and these days that actually includes a broad range of drugs that are in phase one, We, last year, put about 35 patients at MD Anderson with thyroid cancer into phase one clinical trials, and that has led to a number of drugs that are moving out into clinical development, into phase two, or one actually directly into a phase three randomized trial on the basis of phase one data. When we have patients who don't qualify or who don't want to be in a clinical trial, but they need therapy... We and many of our colleagues in the academic centers are beginning to use off-label drugs such as serafinib or sunitinib. So we're using the tyrosine kinase inhibitors. There have been two phase 2 trials for serafinib, both of them completed, one already published. And there is a phase 2 trial of sunitinib that is ongoing, and there have been intermediate reports So many of us are starting to use these drugs in patients who would qualify for clinical trial in terms of this is the sort of patient we would think about it. They need some therapeutic intervention.
0: And could you review the clinical data we have available? Let's start with both of those agents and maybe get into some other ones. So both of these are
1: drugs that are oral tyrosine kinase inhibitors. They have multiple targets. Probably most important is their ability to inhibit VEGF receptors, vascular endothelial growth factor receptors, and therefore target angiogenesis. They also have some inhibitory activity against one of the kinds of mutations that triggers papillary and medullary thyroid cancer, the different types of RET mutations. But the fact that these drugs seem to work in tumors that don't have RET mutations as well as data from other drugs that don't attack RET at all, suggests that the most important target really is
0: the role of angiogenesis. What do we know about the efficacy data for both of those agents?
1: To understand the phase two trial data, you have to realize that there are some differences in eligibility for the trials that have been done and somewhat differences in how efficacy is being assessed. So they're not necessarily directly comparable, unfortunately. But if we look at the two serafinib trials, one had a requirement for patients to have progressive disease of some variety, not well defined. The other one didn't. One study required two successive sets of scans confirming response, whereas the other one did not. With those differences in mind, we're looking at about a 25% partial response rate. Now, if that's a patient who has had stable disease all along, then that's about the best benefit that they're getting. If you're looking at patients with progressive disease, though, then you also consider the percentage of patients who are stabilizing, where you're at least changing the course of the disease to some degree. And with these drugs as well as others, what we're seeing is probably about 50% of patients either stable for at least six months on therapy or having a prolonged partial response. So if we define efficacy as that type of clinical benefit rate, it's about 50% who
0: are clearly getting benefit. How about the side effects and toxicities, pretty much similar with, in terms of these agents that have been seen with other diseases? For the most part, there are,
1: again, some unique differences. So diarrhea, fatigue, hypertension, pretty common across the spectrum. In medullary thyroid cancer, for example, diarrhea is a particular issue because that may be one of the major symptoms of the disease. And we've seen patients treated with some of these agents where actually their diarrhea improves probably due to drug effect on the tumor. But then you get diarrhea that persists. And I had one patient who, after about a year, had to go off of one of the study drugs so she could have a minor surgical procedure. And actually, her diarrhea completely resolved during the three weeks that she was off the therapy. And then it came back when she went on. So the interpretation of diarrhea depends upon the disease. We also saw with some of these agents, that they can cause damage to the thyroid gland in patients who have an intact thyroid. In our thyroid cancer population who already have had their thyroid removed, you wouldn't expect that to be an issue. What we are seeing is that their dose requirements for thyroid hormone may go up significantly. And I had patients where you know they needed double their dose of thyroid hormone. What we don't know is whether this represents an effect on drug absorption that thyroid hormone is not being absorbed as well, or these drugs are stimulating metabolic clearance of the hormone. For an oncologist, this is an important point, though, because the endocrinologists are very attuned to following TSH levels and meticulously adjusting thyroid hormone doses for a narrow range. The oncologists are less experienced with doing that, or it's been less of an emphasis for them. And it's important, especially if
0: TSH stimulates tumor growth. In some situations, we've seen an attempt to correlate, you know, side effects with efficacy. I guess one example with the rash that's been seen with TKIs, I think I've seen something about the impact of these agents in terms of the thyroid maybe predicting antitumor efficacy. Maybe that was renal, but has that been looked at in thyroid? At this point, I'd say that there's no clear correlation between
1: symptoms and response. The strongest evidence or strongest suggestion for that with rash was really with the EGF receptors, because that means that you're actually targeting the receptor that you have in mind. Even that's beginning to kind of fade. So I think for the most part, we're beginning to think that these are pharmacodynamic effects of these drugs, but they don't necessarily really tell us what they're doing to the tumor.
0: How do you generally approach those patients who aren't going to be going on study in terms of you know selection of an agent or are, are these the two agents that you usually are thinking about and do you end up using both of them one of them Well the choices are limited so of the oral
1: tyrosine kinase inhibitors these are the two that work against VEGF and so that really is your limited choice there was a phase 2 trial of gefitinib or eresa that had no benefit at all and I don't think there's been a formal study of erlotinib or tarceva, but EGF receptors play a small role in the disease. So we really narrow ourselves down to these two drugs. Of the two, I tend to start with serafinib, primarily because I think the data substantiating its benefit is stronger in thyroid cancer than sunitinib's data. I find the toxicity is a little bit easier to manage with serafinib than sunitinib, and we are cautious about the cardiac toxicities that seem to be specific to sinitinib. So in general, if I go to a targeted agent, off-label use in a patient, not in a trial, serafinib tends to be my first choice.
0: Have you had patients either on study or off where you've seen objective responses that really you know seem to benefit patients at a clinical level with these agents? Yes. I think... Two examples. One was a lady with
1: papillary thyroid carcinoma. She had a six and a half centimeter lung lesion that was beginning to affect her pleural surface. So she had pain. And with four months of serafinib off label, we were able to shrink that down about in half. Then it stabilized. Her pain went away. Because of a side effect of the drug, she eventually had to come off of it. So she received the drug for about four to six months. She remained stable for about another eight months, though, after we stopped the drug, and now only has begun to progress. But her pain went away, and that, of course, is a great thing. The other was a patient with medullary carcinoma in one of our trials, and this was a woman who was becoming progressively more cachectic and weakened from the course of the disease. And we stabilized her for nearly three years on a phase two drug trial, and she felt remarkably better. So we are definitely seeing that we can help patients clinically, and patients are recognizing the symptomatic benefits. But it's always a trade-off, and the patient has to be very aware of that potential, that at times the toxicity could be worse than the disease
0: itself. I'm curious, because I'm sure a patient who's seeing that they are having an anti-tumor response is going to be very motivated to continue therapy. And that first patient, what was it that caused her to go off treatment. One of the unique side effects that's being seen with serafinib
1: is the development of squamous cell carcinomas of the skin. And I now have seen five patients with thyroid cancer who have developed these. And they can be somewhat atypical tumors called keratoacanthomas. So she developed one on her thigh. We had that taken off. When the second one started to appear, that's when we decided that, you know, the better part of Valor was to stop the drug and she hasn't had any additional skin cancers crop up. This is now
0: being seen and reported with other tumor types as well. That's fascinating. That's the first I've heard of it. Is it usually you know take a while one treatment before this develops or it can happen right away? Can happen within the first couple of months. Wow. What's the presumed pathogenesis? Not known.
1: Great question, but it's clearly something unexpected and unusual.
0: And when you stop the drug, they no longer develop any more of the cancers. What are some of the other novel biologic agents that are being studied right now? Along the
1: same lines, having some anti-angiogenic effect as well as probably some immunomodulatory effects are thalidomide and its derivative lenalidomide, better known as, or easier to say is Revlimid. There have been phase two trials for both of those drugs that have come out of the University of Kentucky. The thalidomide study, which has already been published, the efficacy was weak, although there was a lot of disease stabilization, but side effects were a very big problem. In the subsequent study using lenalidomide, and that was only reported at ASCO last month, efficacy was seen comparable to the tyrosine kinase inhibitors, and the drug was very well tolerated compared with thalidomide. And so it's my understanding that plans are underway now for a randomized phase 3 trial, for lenalidomide.
0: What would be the design?
1: The design that is ongoing now for any of the studies that have moved to this point is randomization of the new drug versus placebo, and the primary endpoints being progression-free survival. At this point in time, adriamycin or doxorubicin is the only approved drug for treating metastatic thyroid cancer. And that's based upon data from the 70s and early 1980s that would be laughed out of the FDA at this point now. Very weak evidence from small studies. And so the Food and Drug Administration has accepted the premise that there is no approved agent with any significant effectiveness. We also have showed them data from some of the clinical trials we've done that there is no standard regimen that patients get treated with in terms of cytotoxic chemotherapy. The patients who are coming into these trials who have been treated with chemotherapy, it's a veritable alphabet soup. So they've accepted the premise that there is no effective or standard regimen. And therefore, a placebo-controlled trial would be an appropriate and ethical
0: study to determine if patients are doing better than just supportive care. So are there situations where you'll utilize chemotherapy or doxorubicin outside of protocol setting patients with a metastatic disease? Certainly. And we continue
1: to use some cytotoxic therapies, far less than we did before. But, you know, at an earlier time when we didn't have Clinical trial options, we didn't have some of these better tolerated agents. We would use combination regimens like adriamycin and cisplatinum or a taxane and a platinum combination. Gemcitabine got a lot of use for a while. And these would be used on the basis of anecdotal experience more than anything else.
0: What are some of the other novel agents that are being looked at in thyroid cancers and that you think maybe over the next few years could enter, you know, sort of clinical care? Looking at some of the other
1: mechanisms that appear to play a role in the biology of the disease, so if we look at papillary carcinomas, for example, that process by which they lose responsiveness to radioactive iodine, one of the main sets of steps are probably epigenetic modifications to the histones, to the DNA that aren't frankly mutations, though. And the use of epigenetic modifiers is of great interest. We have a phase 2 study, for example, of a DNA methylation inhibitor called decitabine, where the primary endpoint we're looking for is restoration of radioactive iodine responsiveness. And there have been several studies ongoing of different types of agents that target PPAR-gamma or retinoid receptors, all with that same idea that they may be able to enhance the redifferentiation of the tumors. Cell cycle control seems to be important, as another mechanism for therapy. It's actually kind of a broad variety of things that are in early clinical trials now, but the one common thread to things that really have been emerging as effective
0: is their ability to target angiogenesis. Can you talk about the work that's been done on vandetanib that we've heard a lot about in non-small cell lung cancer and what's been seen in thyroid cancer? So the vandetanib or Zactima 6474,
1: that was actually One of the first of these tyrosine kinase inhibitors that was extensively studied in preclinical models in thyroid cancer and early on identifying that it could target RET in its different types of mutant forms, both in medullary and papillary carcinoma. So a phase two trial was initiated several years ago specifically for patients with medullary cancer in its inherited form. So all of these patients had germline mutations of RET and advanced disease. And that's been reported a couple of times as the trial has moved forward. Excellent combination of partial responses and stable disease, the majority of patients. That moved into a randomized phase three trial that like many of the others was so successful in recruitment that it closed months ahead of schedule in this worldwide several hundred patient study. And I think the primary analysis will be completed this fall. But there's a lot of optimism from that study
0: about effectiveness in medullary cancer. We heard a lot about that also in lung cancer. What's been seen in terms of side effects and toxicity? The hypertension, the
1: EKG changes, prolonged QT interval being a problem. The skin rashes are really a problem. And we've had patients with exquisite photosensitivity. Despite every precaution, developing very severe sun-related rashes, from the therapy.
0: So the EGF component of that drug is a real issue for these patients. Now I know in lung cancer it's been seen that depending upon the dose, it might have an EGFR or VEGF effect. What range is it being used in with thyroid cancer? In
1: those studies, they started at the 300 milligram dose, which should target the EGF receptor. Most of those patients moved down in doses and got down to the 100 milligram range where EGF is not supposed to be particularly affected. There has been a separate phase two study that was reported at ASCO just starting at the 100 milligram dose. And that also showed about an 18 to 20 percent partial response rate, somewhat similar to the early responses to the higher dose. So it may be that the higher dose really isn't that necessary for effectiveness.
0: What are some of the other agents or strategies that you see that are going to be looked at more carefully over the next few years?
1: I think bringing other pathways into focus, ones that probably are involved with stimulating growth parallel to or even as an escape from MAP kinase signaling. So the PI3 kinase pathway will probably be important, especially in papillary carcinomas. I think in looking at some of the nuclear receptors that play a role will be a useful set of targets because those are receptors that we seem to be able to manipulate, such as the PPAR gammas and the RXR types of receptors. I think a lot needs to be explored about synergizing some of these agents with other more traditional therapies like cytotoxics. And there are some preclinical data that suggest synergistic benefit, but that's not yet been moved into trial. We have been involved with a phase one study that combined serafinib with a drug called tipifarnib, which is a farnesyl transferase inhibitor. And we've had responses in medullary carcinoma patients and papillary carcinoma patients in that trial, but doesn't necessarily look like it's any better than just giving serafinib alone. So a lot
0: yet to be explored. We're hearing a lot about the possibility of combining biologics, particularly, I think, in renal cell cancer. I certainly heard a lot about it. What about in thyroid cancer? Any combinations that, you know, people are excited about or kind of make sense intuitively that you think might get explored? Meaning some of the immunomodulators? Well, just combinations of different biologic agents together, whatever they might be.
1: There are data, especially in anaplastic cancer, that argues that EGF and VEGF would make sense together, that actually the tumor production of VEGF is stimulated through the EGF pathway, so that you would hit angiogenesis in two ways, by blocking VEGF production as well as its action.